Good morning. Good morning, BFCN family. It's good to see you all here this morning. We had so many of you guys that were gone last week, and we are glad you're back. We missed you, and it's great to see everyone. Well, we are grateful to be worshiping in the house of the Lord together in fellowship as a community this morning. Can you say amen if you're glad to be here? Amen. It's good to come together in worship. I want to read to you this morning from Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. The challenge for you this morning is to lift up your eyes. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And he, he has his eyes on you. He's watching you. He's ready to come and help you and rescue you. He's not going to let your foot slip. He's not going to let you fall. And so we worship him this morning for being a great God who sees us, who knows us, who loves us, and is constantly coming to help us. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we are thankful to be here this morning together. And we are here for one purpose, Lord, and that is to worship you. Lord, I pray that we would remove from our mind anything that would distract us, God, from your goodness, from your mercy and your love and what you want to do among us today. Lord, I pray that we would fix our eyes on you, that we would take our eyes off of what is going on around us for this moment and just fix our eyes on you. Lord, we thank you for being our help in times of trouble. We thank you, God, that you never leave us. You never forsake us. You are with us. And Lord, we worship you this morning with glad and sincere hearts. Lord, would you move in a new and fresh way among us today? God, we love you, and we worship your holy name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. This song of ours will rise, oh how kind. 
prayer for you this morning as we sing that beautiful song. What a great reminder. My prayer is that you will know this morning wholeheartedly that there is another in the fire with you. You might at this very moment feel like you are going through the fire. Whatever that may be. Maybe it's a spiritual battle you're facing or fighting. Maybe you feel like The world around you is falling apart. Maybe you're dealing with 
relational issues that have you feeling overwhelmed and heartbroken. Maybe this morning you just feel alone. I think it's really easy for us in this time to feel alone, right? And I think the Lord wants to remind us this morning that no matter what we're facing, we don't face it alone. And I hope you take comfort in knowing that you have a room full of people who want to wrap our arms around you, who love you, who want to be Jesus in the flesh for you, to you. But may you also know that even when you feel like people are are nowhere to be found and you feel like you're just alone, just know that Jesus sees you. And that song has given me great comfort in some really difficult times in life. It'll just hit me out of nowhere that I always thought I was alone when going through something, but oh, the grace of Jesus reminds me, you were never alone. I was there with you. So as we go into a time of prayer, I just pray that you feel that love of Jesus and his presence very near to you. I pray that you would draw near to him this morning because he loves you and he's there with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these reminders this morning. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you remind us of your great love for us and your faithfulness. And God, as we talked about last week, we face difficult times in this world. We're reminded in your word that we were never promised that things would be easy. You never painted a false picture for us that things would be easy and that trials would never come. We know, Lord, that they do and they will. We know that we will face difficult, dark seasons in life. We will face loss. We will experience grief. We'll feel lonely. We'll feel overwhelmed. We'll feel anxious. We'll feel depressed. We'll feel isolated. We'll feel pressure. We'll feel pressure to, to be all that we cannot be. This world is full of difficult moments, trials, and pressures. But Lord, even though we acknowledge these realities, we are reminded time and time again to take heart, to not lose hope, because you are a good God who sees us, who loves us, who is with us, and who is for us. And if we seek you, if we seek your face and your wisdom, you promise that you will help us overcome these difficult things that we face in this world. So God, may we seek your face this morning. May we seek your wisdom as we navigate through difficult things in this life. May we seek your wisdom every single day when we wake up before the trials even come, before the bad things even happen. May we wake up and seek your face. Because Lord, we know we're going to need you to get through each and every day, each and every moment. And Lord, when the trials and difficult moments do come, and it just feels like too much, may we be reminded that we aren't alone. That you are with us, that you will continue to carry us, guide us through, and you will never leave nor forsake us. Lord, I don't know what each person in this place needs this morning, but I know the one who does. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each heart here. Comfort them. Draw near to them. Remind them, remind us of your love. God, we love you. 
And we thank you for these faithful reminders of your goodness and your faithfulness and your love for us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to share a little bit of information with you this morning. Um, We sure do appreciate Aaron Dish and the way that he leads our worship team week after week. Um, And I'm here to sadly share with you that Aaron shared with me a few weeks ago that he would like to step down from leading worship um, week after week. And uh, that was just a season that he was so willing to step into uh, and and faithfully showed up week after week. And we're going to express our appreciation to Aaron in a few weeks, uh, his last Sunday leading worship. He's not going anywhere. He's still going to be here with us, and he'll still even be up here uh, from time to time, I think. But his last week leading us in worship will be Sunday, October 10th. Um, And so we will have plenty of time to express our appreciation for him, and and we'll talk about that some more. But I just want to encourage you to let him know uh, just what that's meant to you, and we do appreciate his faithfulness, and we appreciate Nikki Whitney who's going to kind of help us through that transition. Um, And so thank you, Nikki, and thank you to everybody who faithfully shows up every week. And so I just wanted to share that with you this morning. Thank you, Aaron. And again, we'll we'll continue to uh, show our appreciation for him. Okay? Well, this morning, um, we're going to be in James chapter 1 and also James chapter 5. So... At the say, for, to keep you from having a flip-flop back and forth, if you wanted to open up to James chapter 1, that's where we'll be uh, starting out this morning. And uh, just a little bit of, of a, a kind of just a FYI for you, you'll notice that as we go throughout the book of James, uh, we started this series last week, and you'll notice that as we go throughout this book, we're going to kind of mix and match different passages. And the only reason I'm noting that is because that's not typically how I preach. I usually uh, like to, to find one, one passage uh, and just kind of preach from that because there's always so much to be found in each passage. Uh, but even so scholars note this unique kind of different way that James is written and that at times it feels less like a letter and more like a, a proverb or an essay. And so they, scholars even note this that it's sometimes a little bit scattered. And so as I come to a particular message or a theme that James is talking about, I find that he actually refers back to that a little bit later in the book. And so that's why you'll kind of see a few different passages um, put together in one sermon. It's not to be unfaithful to the context or to his text, uh, but that's just kind of how it's flowing uh, throughout this series. So last week, as I kind of just noted in, in, in our time of prayer, we started out in James chapter 1, and right out of the gate, James uh, is talking to us about how difficult life is going to be at times, and how in this life we're going to face troubles, we're going to face temptations and trials, and James doesn't paint this false picture for us, but he does remind us of God's goodness and faithfulness when we seek him and his wisdom. And so last week we talked about how the goodness of God can be trusted even in the midst of difficult moments. We talked about how trials will come, life will be full of hard and difficult days, but when that happens, we have a choice regarding how we respond, and ultimately, we have a choice when it comes to what we believe about God. Are we going to believe in God's goodness and faithfulness and love in the midst of trials and temptations? And so that's kind of what we talked about last week. And we, we kind of, again, James talks about that at the beginning of chapter one and then a little bit later in chapter one and kind of couched in between that. If you notice in your Bible or if you've got the Bible app pulled up on your phone, if you notice in between that, he starts talking about the rich and the poor. And so he starts talking about money, and there's this conversation of of the rich and the poor and what that means for the believer. Now, before we get too far into this, you've already probably figured out what we're talking about today, and we're talking about money. And anytime you're talking about money, I just sense that there's like a stiffness in the room, and there's like we're like clenched a little bit, and I just want to alleviate some of that this morning, and I'm going to let you know that we're not talking about tithes and offerings today. Does that make you feel a little bit better at least to know that, that this isn't a sermon on tithes and offerings? 
I just thought that might make you feel better that it's not coming in this sermon today. Um, scripture is full of direction when it comes to our tithes and our offerings and our, our faithfulness to God with our gifts. Um, but this, it's not covered in this text, in this passage. Nowhere do scholars make a connection between this talk, that this, what James is telling us, and tithes and offerings. So I just wanted to kind of let you know so you can unclench a little bit and just know that, that that's not what this is about. But really, this, these passages that we read today are addressing more of a lifestyle and a heart that is more oriented to the idea of living and loving others with everything we have, rather than living only for ourselves, okay? That's what this is about today. So I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand this morning as we read from James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and then we'll read James 5, 1 through 6. So follow along as we read, starting with verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I should have said this is the very difficult to digest word of the Lord this morning because if we're honest, it can be one of those passages. Remember last week, I did warn you. I told you that James is going to have these moments where he's going to say things that are just going to step on your toes a little bit, confront you a little bit, and make you feel just a little bit uncomfortable. So I think if you feel a little bit uncomfortable each week, you might be picking up what James is trying to teach you or speak to you. When it comes to these passages... Uh, Bear with me as I kind of flesh out some of the things that scholars have a hard time with. (laughs) I was really glad to know that scholars who are on a much, much higher level than I am uh, when it comes to intellect, I was really grateful to know that even they have a hard time deciphering some of what James is saying, and that made me feel just a whole lot better about what I was kind of taking away from it at first. Like, for instance, one of the things that scholars have a hard time with is when it comes to verses 9 through 11 and where exactly those were meant to fit in James's letter or in what he's saying. Does it fit within the context of trials and temptations when it comes to the poor and those who are living in poor conditions? Because if you remember from last week, James goes from talking about facing trials to then being double-minded. Remember the double-minded person that goes back and forth and is watching to and fro like the waves, and then he immediately talks about believers who are poor and who are doing without, and then he picks back up on the persevere, endure, ask God for wisdom and he will help you, and scholars are trying to figure out what exactly was he saying or was he intending with kind of couching these things with some words of wisdom to the poor and to the rich, If James did intend for these to be, for verses 9 through 11 to be in the place where they are, then perhaps James is is saying something along the lines to the poor, to the lowly, to the oppressed. Perhaps he's saying, take heart. God is going to elevate you. Take heart. God is going to make things right with you. In the, the poor people, the poor in James's day and our own, they're often taken advantage of by the rich. They're, they're often considered by society to be lowly, to be unimportant, to be unnoticed. 
But we're reminded all throughout scripture time and time again that we're the poor, the lowly, the unimportant, the disregarded by society. They are noticed and seen by God. Anytime God's people in scripture are oppressed or neglected or they're in this place where they need rescuing, where they need help, we see that God hears, he listens, he responds, he acts, and he, he works to redeem and restore those who were oppressed or neglected or pushed to the side. One of the times we see this is in Exodus, when God hears the cries of the Israelites. They cry out, if there is a God, save us. If there is a God, help us, redeem us, rescue us. We are poor, we are oppressed, we are exploited Save us if you're there, and God does. He, he listens, he, he takes action, he moves toward, he redeems, and he sets them free. And so anytime God's people are poor, lowly, oppressed, disregarded by society, he comes in and he helps them. We're reminded in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus speaks something similar. He says, blessed are the poor or the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We see once again this, this upside-down way of viewing things. Jesus sees things in an upside-down way. Those who are lowly will be lifted high. Those who are humbled will be exalted. Those who are last will be first. This is the lens in which Jesus saw the poor, the lowly, the oppressed, and perhaps it's the lens that we ought to see them through as well. So, if James did indeed, indeed mean for, for these verses to be placed right here, then the message is to take heart. He even encourages them to boast or take pride. You don't see that in scripture very often. To boast or take pride in knowing that God sees you. God sees you. And they will see God. Have you ever known a person who had very little Maybe on a, on a mission trip or a work and witness trip, or maybe you just have someone in your life that you know who has very little. They have nothing, and yet they are so full of joy. They have nothing to be joyful about because they literally have nothing. They, people live, who live in, in one-room houses with dirt floors, and, and they just barely have enough to get by, and yet those people are oftentimes the most joyful people. And I wonder if that's because what James says is true or what Jesus says is true, that they see God. They see God in ways that we might not see because we rely upon ourselves rather than God, right? We should all be in a place where we are utterly dependent upon God. Uh, so another thing that scholars aren't entirely sure about when it comes to this, these passages are these harsh words that James has and who they are for. There's this big question of who is James talking to when he's speaking such harsh words of judgment? Is he talking to Christians, to believers, or is he talking to non-Christians or non-believers? Because in verse 9, he very specifically addresses believers. Believers take pride in humble circumstances, but it's unclear who the rich and the wealthy are. Are they believers or are they unbelievers? And, and to some extent, we don't really know. We know that some of James' words resemble those of Old Testament prophetic voices that we see in so many places throughout the major and minor prophets, places like Amos and Micah and Isaiah and more. We see that there's a very similar message. The message is for different people at different times, but the message is always the same. The rich are corrupt, they oppress the poor, and God will not stand for it. Here's a word of warning. God will not stand for it. Scholars also note that there is, is likely implied a strong word of warning for the wealthiest elite that had a hand in Jesus' death. That, that they very, he very well could be addressing some of the wealthiest elite who played a part in Jesus' death. And then, actually, there's a little bit of irony here because later on they would play a part in James' death as well. James was martyred, and he was martyred by elites who were angry about the message that he preached when it, when it came to money. So maybe that's kind of who he's talking to here, although I don't think they listened, right? Perhaps, ultimately, that's who his strongest word of warning are intended for. 
These warnings, though, they should be heard and they should be addressed for those who would do something so, so evil against God, like exploit the poor and oppress the poor. And so just as God responded and acted in solidarity before, James is reminding us that God is going to continue to do that over and over again. But now, we got all that out of the way. Sorry, that was a lot to dump on you, and it was a little bit of a, of a lesson almost. <laughs> but now that leaves you and I, right? That leaves you and I, Christians, believers, who are probably not the wealthiest of society. I would imagine if you are, you do a really great job of hiding it, because I don't know. But, but that leaves you and I, everyday Christians, asking ourselves, what's the message for me here? What What's the message for myself? Assuming that we aren't exploiting the poor or taking advantage of the meek and and getting rich at someone else's expense, what are we to make of this passage? What's the message for us today? And what I'm not sure we ought to do is is that we ought to easily rush past this assuming that it's not for us or assuming that there's no word of warning for us. I think it'd be really easy to look at my bank account right now and to look at those in society who are, you know, the top five richest people in the world and say, ooh, this must be a warning for you because it's not for me because my bank account looks nothing like yours. I think it's really easy to do that, to, to admit that, that my bank account is, is not as full as some, and so this must be a warning for them and not necessarily a warning for me, right? But I think that would be doing a disservice and that it would be unfaithful to the word of God that is helpful for all, for all and helpful to all. And I think that we need to approach these passages from a place of humility, asking the question, listen, here's what I want you to ask today. What about me? What does this mean for me? Not what does this mean for them? Not what did it mean for them? But what does this passage mean? mean for me? What is God trying to say to me? What is it that I might need to hear today? So considering these things, what are we to do with verses like this one? Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. What are we to do with that? I don't know if you are reminded of this, but I am reminded of of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Listen to how similar Jesus' words are to James. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These two passages are quite similar. Do you see the resemblance? They both mention moths eating and consuming. They both mention those. James has got to be pointing back to Jesus' words, as we talked about last week. He does this often. Both mention moths eating and consuming, and both mention this idea of corrosion or rust. I actually think James's usage of corrosion is interesting if you think about it, because he's saying that your things will testify against you. And he's almost speaking in what sounds like legal terms. And I was trying to reconcile this, and I really like Francis Chan's take on this verse or this part of the passage where he notes that where, where there was once comfort and solace given to us by our wealth and our things, our assets may actually speak out against us, and they may actually testify against us becoming a liability in the eyes of Jesus, depending on how you view your things and your wealth. But each of these examples given, we read these as metaphors. And essentially, they are warning us about hoarding and storing up useless things on earth, in the present, here and now, when it's all going to be meaningless in eternity. When we're thinking in the, in the scope of eternity, our things that we value so much now will be meaningless. We know this teaching, right? 
Here's what I think is important for us to acknowledge today. As I prayed over this passage this week and as I asked God to, to help us have a takeaway that, that we can apply to the right here and right now in each and every one of our lives, knowing that we come from different places. And I think that the takeaway from this passage is knowing Jesus and considering his life and teachings as a whole. I don't think either James nor Jesus had it out for rich people, or that they're declaring this blanket statement that all of those who have wealth are in danger of damnation. I think there are plenty of warnings in scripture when it comes to wealth and, and, and the love of money and how that can be the root of all things that are evil. I think we have to pay attention and be careful. But I think that Jesus is mysteriously speaking here about storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven rather than on earth. What does that mean? I've always wrestled with what that means. Like, how do I now store up treasures for myself in heaven? What does, what does heaven need of mine that it doesn't already have? And then when I was a little bit younger, um, you know, not too much younger, but when I was a little bit younger and poorer, I thought, well, maybe since I don't have a very pretty house now, I can't afford a really nice house now, maybe that means I'll have a big, beautiful mansion in heaven. That's how twisted our thinking is when it comes to these things sometimes. When really, I don't, think God is, I don't think God is necessarily concerned about my mansion in heaven. So what does this mean? What does it mean to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven? How does one do this? And we have to believe that Jesus is speaking metaphorically, right? And since one cannot physically or literally store up treasures for themselves in heaven, then I think another way of putting this is by asking the question, are we reflecting a heavenly perspective or an earthly one when it comes to how we spend our money, how we give our money, how we invest our money, how we save our money, and how we earn our money? Are we thinking about the earthly perspective or the heavenly perspective? Stay with me. I know, I'm taking you all over the place today. It's kind of like a, a maze. We're going to get there, I promise. Remember in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. Remember? When, when I think about that, I think about heaven not just in eternal terms, but I think about it being the already, the here and now. Remember, we've talked about how, how we believe in the already and not yet, that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here, and it can, and it can be experienced now, but it's also not yet, meaning it's, it's yet to be completely fulfilled, and we're still waiting on God to once and for all make things all right and new again. But Jesus says that the kingdom of God is present, and God is actively working to restore and redeem and renew creation. And I also remember that you and I, the church, we have been called to partner with God. The church is partnering with God as the Spirit works in and through us to restore, redeem, and renew creation. And that doesn't exclude helping the poor and those who are exploited and taken advantage of, those who are doing without, those who are dying of hunger, those who have no access to clean water, those who can't afford education or clothes. The list goes on. I think these things are all included when it comes to partnering with God, being in partnership with God, renewing, redeeming, and restoring creation here and now. Do you believe that God is doing that here and now? Yes? It's not just for later, right? We can experience the new redemption of God right here and right now. If you believe that, then you need to be reminded that you are called to partner with God that the Holy Spirit is working in and through you to partner with him to help redeem and restore and renew creation. And at this point, you might be asking the question, what does any of this have to do with how my money and my things are going to judge me? See, I think the non-believer or the person who's not thinking about this through the lens of Jesus, I think that those people think about their money and their wealth as their own personal business. And to some extent, you know, somebody who's not me would say, you're right. Somebody who, there's, there's people who would say that this is really poor advice that I'm about to give you, right? 
But, but a lot of people think of their money and their wealth as, as my personal business. It's my personal situation. It doesn't involve anyone else. It's between me and my financial advisor. But I would argue that even though there is some truth to that, the greatest command that we talked about all summer, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I would imagine that your money is implied in that, and loving your neighbor as yourself, I would say that the greatest command pushes up against that and would ask the question, how does my spending affect my neighbor or others that are doing without? How does my earning affect my neighbor or others who are doing without? How does my saving, my giving, or my investing affect others and those who are doing without? Do you still believe that it doesn't? That it doesn't affect, that it shouldn't affect, that it has nothing to do with your money? Let me give you an example. When it comes to how you spend your money, have you ever been shopping at a store and you're at the the checkout, you're you're with the cashier and you're buying all this stuff and then you realize that you paid almost nothing for all this stuff, and you just kind of chuckle to yourself. You feel really proud. I felt really proud when I've done that before, and I just think, wow, look how much money I'm saving by buying all this really cheap stuff. I remember hearing a teaching one time, a very convicting and uncomfortable teaching that I still have trouble with today, that that kind of pointed to, you know, big brands, big-name brands that sell their stuff for really cheap, and you ask yourself, how can they do that? And the answer is really unpleasant because they can't do that. Somebody's working for nothing so that we can buy these really great clothes for really cheap. And so I started out on this, this rabbit hole where I was researching this and I was researching well-known name brands. And I'm just going to warn you, if you start down this rabbit hole, it's a very convicting rabbit hole. And you're going to feel very convicted and uncomfortable and it's going to be something that you wrestle with for a long time because I still wrestle with this. You might find that, that there are somewhere around 160 million kids around the world that, are, that work in forced labor. Forced labor in sweatshops. And it's really hard for me to reconcile saving money for myself to better myself and my family and knowing that I may be unintentionally supporting a corporation that is not looking out for the well-being of others or for the poor or the lowly, those who are easily exploitable? What about how you invest or save? I I think about how I'm so worried about saving for my kids' future. That's important to me, and I think that should be important to us. As parents of, of young kids, we should prepare and save for their future. But I have a hard time reconciling only preparing and saving for their future that's not even here yet, that I don't even know about yet, all the while there are kids around the world and probably right here in Illinois that are dying today. And I'm so fixated and obsessed with my children's future that's not even here yet. How do I reconcile that? How do we reconcile these things as believers, as people who are partnering with God to redeem, restore, and renew creation here and now? Are you following me? You might be uncomfortable, but are you at least following me? It's uncomfortable, I know. Do we consider how our choices regarding our money, do we consider how these things contribute to the kingdom of heaven that is here and now? that wants to restore and redeem poor, exploited families? Or in James' words, are we so concerned with luxury and self-indulgence and fattening ourselves up while so many continue to go without essentials like food and water? I appreciate how Walter Brueggemann, he doesn't separate the concept of money from our love for neighbor, but instead he asks the very hard question of what's the connection between my money and my love for my neighbor. And I think through the lens of Jesus, we ought to ask, am I investing in myself in the here and now, or am I investing in the upside-down ways of the kingdom to love my neighbor as myself, and at times accomplishing this with the willingness to give of my money or be less concerned about my money or my wealth or my things? As we close, I just want to acknowledge 
that there's a reason why people get so defensive when you start talking about money, right? And there's a reason why pastors don't preach on this. There's a reason why you, fa- why you find yourself feeling super sweaty and uncomfortable up here because <laughs> you know that, that people feel very protective when you start talking about their money. It's personal. It's mine. And we feel very defensive and protective about that. But I just want to remind us this morning that I think God wants to challenge us and wants to remind us about how harmful our love for our money can be and how harmful it can be to only focus on the here and now. And we should acknowledge that it's possible to allow my own concern with my own gain or my own wealth and how that might affect my neighbor and how God might be wanting to do something for them, with them, and I might be a hindrance to that at some point if God is calling me to partner with him. I think that we must be willing to pause and pray, to pay attention and to ask God, am I being good stewards? Are we being good stewards with our money? Are we, re- are we being responsible citizens of the kingdom? Or are we only investing in the here and now? I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up. And as they do... I want to share with you that that John Wesley, who is one of our, in the Church of the Nazarene, we call him a theological forefather. John Wesley was famously known to have said this. Those lifelong Nazarenes in the room have probably heard this at some point. John Wesley says, in a sermon called The Use of Money, he, he famously says, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. In this sermon, he says, gain all you can, but not at the expense of life or at the expense of your health. We are to gain all we can without harming our neighbor. We cannot, he says, consistent with brotherly love, sell our goods below the market price. He says, save all you can. Expend no part of it merely to gratify the desire of the flesh or the desire of the eye, or the pride of life. He says, give all you can. Render unto God the things that are God's, not only by what you give to the poor, but also by that which you expend in providing things needful for yourself and for your household. See, for Wesley, money was an excellent gift of God. Money is an excellent, we would say, yes, excellent gift of God. But money in the hands of God's children is for food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, and clothing for the naked. And I'm not sure what God is saying to you with this passage today, with this message. Maybe you aren't even sure because that's how all over the place we went. Maybe it's to just be aware, more aware and educated where your money comes from and where it's going. Maybe that's a start for you. Just be mindful, do some researching and, and just see where, what am I supporting with my money? Maybe it's to consider how you are or are not consistently giving to those in need. I think as, as believers, as Christians, as people who are partnering with God, as people who are on mission with God, it should be a regular part of your monthly budget to be giving in some way to organizations that are the hands and feet of Jesus. And I'm not talking about the church. Remember, this is not a sermon on tithes and offerings. I'm talking about separate, above and beyond your tithes and offerings. How faithful are you in giving to those ministries that need your help so that they can be the boots on the ground, hands and feet of Jesus? Maybe today you're just encouraged to live more generously to not hold so tight to the things that promise you life and and future and abundance but instead trust in the abundance of God and live generously with those around you who are in need would you pray with me heavenly father I pray this morning that you would speak to us Lord, I pray that you would challenge our hearts this morning. 
that you would guide us in the ways in which we earn our money, the ways in which we invest our money, spend our money, save our money, and give our money. Lord, my prayer is that we would do all of these things in a a way that is wise and in a way that honors you and shows I do love my neighbor and I'm concerned for my neighbor. I'm concerned for their here and now just like I'm concerned for my here and now. Lord, I pray that you will show us what faith in action looks like for the believer and how we spend our money and what we do with our money. Lord, I think that you're reminding us that faith in action looks less like hoarding for myself only to look out for the best interests of me and my own, but it instead challenges us to partner with you where you're working to redeem and restore, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. God, would you show us what it looks like to be ready to live and give generously to those around us when you prompt us to do so? Show us how to be responsible stewards with what you've given us. Help us, God, to operate less out of a fear of scarcity, but instead in your abundance, always giving us what we need when we need it. God, remind us of the truth of your word, that when we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, what you are doing here and now, you will give us all the things necessary for today and for tomorrow. And God, we are reminded and we are so grateful for the ways in which Jesus gave up the treasures of the earth. You traded the treasures of the earth for us. You gave up what the world would say is the most important thing. You gave up the wealth and the treasures and the status of the earth. And you traded that for us. God, may we see things in the upside-down way in which you see them. And may that be evident in our lives. Be our vision today, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing this song with us this morning.
For more than 60 years, Nazarenes around the world have been sacrificing financially to construct hospitals, schools, churches, and homes for missionaries through what is known as Alabaster Offering. But gifts to the Alabaster Offering provide much more than buildings. When you give to the Alabaster Offering, you are teaching children to read and write. You are meeting healthcare needs where common illnesses claim lives. You are uniting with believers of different cultures as the global church. You are housing missionaries so they can share the good news of Jesus. Your gift to the Alabaster Offering is a gift of hope to thousands in every corner of the world because you choose to pour out the love God has lavished on you. Well, to complement that passage very well, you will remember that all month long we've been reminding you and encouraging you uh, that this is um, Alabaster Month. We do this two times a year in February and September where we uh, just collect. A lot of times it's your spare change that you've been collecting for those six months and that you come and you give and there's the big alabaster box in the foyer where you can dump that change or your dollar bills or whatever you want to give, however you want to give to that. But uh, just another beautiful way that we can partner with the kingdom of God with the Church of the Nazarene as they continue to uh, do the important work all over the world of, of reaching individuals with the gospel, with the good news, and sustaining that as they plant themselves in a place. I, I love that the work of, of alabaster offering or the, the gifts of alabaster offering goes to the work where people are planting themselves in a local community. We believe in local community, right? That it's important, it's valuable. We should root ourselves in a local community and give and serve in that community. And that's what the Alabaster Offering supports. It supports pastors and missionaries and families that are going somewhere and they're wanting to plant themselves in a community and be the hands and feet of Jesus to those that are in a lot of times much more poorer conditions than than we are here in this place. So just a reminder of the, the beauty of the work of the, of the church uh, through your gifts in the alabaster offering. We want to also remind you that the Restore Network uh, will continue collecting diapers and pull-ups and wipes uh, for just a few more weeks here for the month of September. So if you haven't had a chance to bring those in yet, you can drop those off on the, in the empty box in the foyer. We want to remind you that the Lunch Bunch is going to gather on um, Wednesday, September 29th at noon, and this time that's going to be at the Easy Buffet. And uh, we also want to remind you that there will be an all-church fellowship on Saturday, September 25th. That's next Saturday at 11 a.m. We're going to meet at uh, Shrans Memorial Park in Swansea, and we're going to gather for a time of food and fellowship, and we're asking uh, that you would sign up to bring desserts and sides. Uh, The church is going to provide chicken, and we're also asking each family to bring whatever you want to drink. Uh, Just bring your own drinks so that we don't have to worry about providing those for everyone because you never know what people are going to drink, what they like, what their kids want. So just bring your own drinks, bring a side, and listen, even if you aren't sure that you can commit to coming right now because you don't know if you're available and and you're afraid that if you come, you have to bring a side or something, we want you to come anyway. Right, And so if you can come but you can't bring a side for whatever reason, please still come anyways. We just want you to be here, and we're excited about this time of fellowship, okay? Uh, But go ahead and sign up to let us know that you might be coming so that we know how much chicken to provide. And also, I want to share with you that we're going to be starting a new Connect 101 class next Sunday at 9.30. If you're interested in learning more about the church uh, or the work of the Church of the Nazarene, then that's a great time to learn some new things and ask questions, um, and and we can kind of help you understand what the community of BFCN uh, is all about here. And my last thing that I want to share with you this morning um, is is just wanting to make notice of a great accomplishment of someone in our church. Um, We are a community, and we celebrate when good things happen to those in our community, right? And so I want to share with you that Faith Short, wave hi to us, Faith. Faith learned this weekend that she is going to be, she was chosen to participate in the USA Special Olympics. And that is a big deal. 
she had to compete against a lot of other people, and, and she was chosen for her talents, and we are so excited for that great accomplishment, Faith, and she's going to do that next summer in June of 2022, and so we just say from your church family, Faith, congratulations, and we're very excited for you. All right? Well, I want to invite you all to stand together this morning. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that you would go in the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that you would learn to live and give generously, and that God would be blessed because of your faithfulness. Go in his peace. You are dismissed.